hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's programme. Experts have said lockdowns are the only way to slow transmission. This is painfully hard in favelas. How do you isolate when you live in a crowd? Or living on the streets, for that matter? With most of the world slowly starting to emerge from isolation... In some of the often more overlooked corners of our cities, it hasn't been quite so easy to steer clear of strangers. Today, we look at those living in high-density areas or without any form of home at all and how they've gone about the tricky business of protecting their health. How does New York's homeless population make it through a pandemic? How do those in Rio's favelas attempt to social distance? And will the very nature of crowds ever be the same? All that coming up in the next 30 minutes, right here on The Urbanist, with me, Andrew Tuck. Cities are crowded places. After all, the reason more than half of the world's population flocks to urban areas isn't for personal space. The cities we live in are bustling, burbling, bouncy places that wouldn't be the same without a few sidewalk hoggers and queue jumpers. But they also make for tough places to isolate, especially if you live in slums where density is high and living standards are low. This may explain the many reports showing how the virus is disproportionately affecting minority citizens and the poor. The favelas of Rio are just one example of the many vulnerable communities that are being hit hard by the pandemic. And whatever disappointment and anger regular Brazilian citizens may feel towards their leaders in fighting this crisis, those that live high up on its hillsides are feeling it even more so. Monocle's Latin America's affairs correspondent, Lucinda Elliott, brings us this report on life in the favela during a pandemic. A staggering gap between haves and have-nots is a centuries-old problem in Brazil. So it was no surprise that with the arrival of the first COVID-19 cases, that the same issues associated with deep-rooted social inequality would persist. Here in the city of Rio, where the country's first makeshift homes in working-class districts, known as favelas, came to be, how the virus is tackled in the poorest communities up in the steep surrounding mountains is an issue for almost everyone. The first person to die from the virus in the state of Rio was a 63-year-old domestic worker. She commuted each week to an apartment in Leblon, arguably the most affluent beachside neighbourhood in Brazil. Her employer had been on a trip to Italy. She lived in a simple cinder block house that she and five relatives shared. Olá, boa tarde para você. Esta é a CNN Brasil. Eu sou Luciana Barreto e estes são os cinco fatos da tarde desta quinta-feira, dia 19 de março. Ever since, fears over how the disease would spread when a fifth of all Rio residents live in the favela have been palpable. There's a painful irony with how the wealthier classes likely infected the most vulnerable after a glitzy Euro holiday or business trip. But because of how these communities have been forced to live, Many accept that a lockdown to stop its spread, similar to that imposed in most developed nations, would be impractical or impossible in such areas where overcrowding is a fact of life. Until the Brazilian government can test between 30,000 and 50,000 people per day, which may take months, 
Experts have said lockdowns are the only way to slow transmission. This is painfully hard in favelas. How do you social distance when there are seven people across three generations living to a single room? Wash hands regularly when there is no access to a continuous water supply? And who covers household bills if the majority stop physically going out to work to receive cash in hand salaries? A recent survey showed that more than half of homes in the favela do not have access to running water. Three in four, no connection to mainline sewage services. And informal jobs made up 17% of the Brazilian economy last year. Since city and state governments have long failed to extend many public services to the favelas, community members, led by their local associations, have banded together to provide sanitation, medical care and transport to their neighbours. So far, the first response to coronavirus in Rio's favelas came from criminal gangs in one of the city's most notorious communities, the City of God, home to roughly 38,000 people. They started to impose a strict curfew in March to try and stop contamination. Gangsters driving vehicles with loudspeakers have patrolled areas, warning residents to stay inside. In others, traffickers have shut down open-air drug markets and cancelled all-night parties. Community leaders of Hosinha, famous for its stunning views over Ipanema Beach and a popular tourist spot, delivered an early official request to the state tourism department to ban all foreigners from entering the hilltop neighbourhood when the outbreak was announced. Officials said that they would be leaving free soap at entrances. In Babylonia, volunteers regularly disinfect areas, where there are rumblings of plans to move elderly residents with known health conditions to hotels. The city mayor said he'd signed a deal to secure 400 rooms. Dozens of privately-led crowdfunding and awareness campaigns have also kicked off, including one called Favela Contra o Virus that began in Rio but is now nationwide. What's clear is that Brazilian cities can't function without the favela workforce. They simply won't run. No delivery boys, no cleaners, no caretakers. No petrol pump workers, beach vendors and bartenders. Architects and city planners are well aware of the benefits that would come from improving essential services. MMBB, a firm that was founded in the early 1990s by top architects Marta Moreira and Milton Braga, has drawn up some brilliant plans over the years, with special walkways that collect rainwater, an issue in a tropical country like Brazil, but that also double up as a promenade come fountain for children to play. Swooping plans to open up public space to prevent overcrowding, improve lighting and reduce crime. And so that buses, ambulances and even post office workers can physically reach homes. Up until today, there's been very little state backing for these big plans. Successive governments choosing to direct funds elsewhere or into their own pockets. No real catalyst for change. Looking back, the term favela first came about when government soldiers who had lived among the favela trees in Bahia marched south to Rio to demand their payment. They settled on what is one of the city's hills and renamed it Morro da Favela, after the shrubby tree that thrived in the very location of their battle victory. The government then never did pay them, 
so the soldiers never left. Inaction by authorities changed the city of Rio forever. Could coronavirus and government action in response to it be a new motive for change? For Monocle in Rio de Janeiro, I'm Lucinda Elliott. Next to the United States, from convention centers filled with homeless people in California to New York City's bid to move rough sleepers from its subway system due to coronavirus, the pandemic has shone an urgent light on the city's most distressed populations and those with no fixed abode, a population numbering some 550,000 in the U.S., Today arguably presents a unique opportunity for civic and private sector leaders to come together to solve the conundrum that has dogged many American and global metropolises for decades. The solution? Clever repurposing and cheaper building costs may hold the key. Our America's editor-at-large caught up with David Hart, LA-based CEO of nationwide architecture firm Steinberg Hart, who's been pondering what architects could and should be doing. Nationally in the US, I don't think enough people talk or are aware about homelessness, and largely because it's concentrated in the urban cores, in the urban centers. I live in Los Angeles. We also have offices in New York and San Francisco, some of the places that have some of the highest per capita homelessness. So I think it's one of those issues that's concentrated from an awareness standpoint, it's concentrated in certain parts of the country and largely is ignored or invisible, or people choose to make it invisible in other parts of the country. How do you think this pandemic has shone a light on the issue of homelessness? Well, I talked about it being invisible, and I think it's moved from being something invisible to people being more aware, because it's life-threatening. Rightly so, our governors and our mayors have taken action and have started to move those at highest risk. So people experiencing homelessness are already at a higher level of risk because they usually have a pre-existing condition, health condition of some sort from living on the street. So our mayors and our governors, uh, particularly in California, took action. And by doing so, they started to move people into convention centers, uh, into community centers, into hotels. And so That, of course, people started to become aware of because, I guess we'll put it this way, when the government actually starts to take action, people start to have a higher level of awareness and start to pay attention. But I think the second part to it is what happens in a month or two or three when you want to bring the hotel back to being a hotel or the community basketball court to being a community basketball court or the convention center back. And so that is where it goes from a recognition of it's a good idea, an emergency response type of idea, to a what happens next? What's the cascading effect? And I I think that's really where we are now. And surprisingly, there's not a lot of conversation about how do we decant people from the hotels or from the community centers once the crisis has passed, or maybe I should say normalized in some way. I'm going to ask you that difficult question now, David. I'm going to ask you what you think should happen. If you look statistically, food, gas, transportation, these costs from 1970 to now, 50 years, let's say, 
have actually decreased as a percentage of our income or what we spend. But housing just continues to increase year after year after year. So then when we talk about building affordable housing, the cost per door or the cost per unit is so high because affordable housing in California has to meet all of the requirements that a luxury housing development does. Yes, the finishes are different and some of the quality of the architecture is different, but the overall cost per unit is about 90% of what you would have for a luxury unit. Why is it so expensive? Well, part of it is just the process of entitlement, finding a site and then building on that site you basically don't get any break on the cost of construction because it's affordable versus it being luxury or typical multifamily. There's no break in the cost for the contractor who's building it. One of the things we have to do is cut down on some of the red tape, some of the bureaucracy that keeps us from being able to find a site and build on that site for workforce or affordable or even a permanent supportive housing, a shelter, so to speak. The red tape means that a project might spend 18 months to two years through the environmental and planning review, and it's susceptible to all of the challenges from neighbors in that area that a typical development would go through. So there's not any sort of exemption or prioritization of that. We're working on three modular projects right now. And once these get to a scale, we really think that modular has the opportunity to be a faster, smarter, and less expensive mode of construction. But it, like most things, it needs scale. And so this is where I think California could incentivize in the same way that they partnered with Elon Musk to be a destination for electric car technology for the Tesla which was great economics for California. The same sort of thing could happen if a state decided that they wanted to be the, whether it's California or New York or Texas, if they really wanted to be the the state that incentivized modular housing and started to do it at scale, we'd eventually see the cost come down and we may actually start to get ahead of this challenge. Let me ask you, A personal question. I wanted to know why you've decided to focus on this question of homelessness. Obviously, there's a tie-in, a strong one, with the fact you're an architect, but it's not something that all architects spend time thinking about. That's a good question. It comes from a belief that as architects, our job is to make the world a better place, a better place than we found it. And that creating buildings that are going to be around 50 or 100 years, that they need to be beautiful, and they are really in service to humanity. And so you start to go the next step and you start to look at the people who are homeless and struggling in their life, and you realize that shelter is a basic human right. And we don't talk about it that way. We talk about healthcare, talk about education, we talk about upward mobility, a lot of different things. And I think what really has struck me is that shelter is something that those of us who've always had it take it for granted. And those who haven't have a very different experience of the world. And so I think for us as a architecture firm that does a lot of work in the space of housing, 
We do senior housing. We do student housing. We do luxury rental. We do market rate rental, workforce housing, all different typologies. If there's a type of housing, we've done it at some point in our 60-year practice. And we felt like if we didn't tackle this and address this personally, myself, but as a firm, that we weren't making the difference that we wanted to make in our communities. You've talked about wanting to see municipalities, real estate investors and architects all coming together to solve this issue of homelessness. Are there particular cities that you think are doing this really well? Is Eric Garcetti's Los Angeles achieving this? Or are there other hubs around the world where you see this fusion of different players? I hope that the awareness that's brought about by COVID-19 and frankly, some of the disruption may lead us to some solutions, but we we need to be forward thinking about them. Obviously the community centers and convention centers will go back to their intended purposes, but I think there's two areas that are potentially long-term disrupted. One is retail. And the big part of retail is the big malls. The big malls will, if they're in strategic locations, They will be good candidates for industrial, you know, Amazon distribution centers, Walmart distribution centers. So that's already happened. They could also serve as shelters, you know, big malls that aren't in good position for industrial. They could be shelters or affordable housing. I also think of the small neighborhood retail. A lot of those will struggle to come back. And the ability to take those in California, we call them strip centers, those have the ability to be workforce housing, getting people, whether they're teachers or firemen, you know, closer to their, you know, where their job is. But I think retail is going through such a disruption here. That could be an opportunity for cities to look at properties that might be purchased, leased, and then converted into some form of shelter or housing. The other is parking structures. If we don't go back to 100% everybody working in the office, if we go back to half or two-thirds office time, not only might that be good for the environment, but it means that we would have a lot of space in parking structures. So anyway, those are a couple of ideas as we look at the disruption to the real estate world over the next six to 18 months where might there be places that municipalities could get creative and help somebody who's really hurting as a landlord or as a property owner and then basically capitalize on that for the greater good. David Hart, LA-based CEO of Steinberg Hart, in conversation with our America's editor-at-large, Ed Stocker. Finally today, we assess the very nature of crowds, How are public gatherings set to be affected by this crisis? And what lessons can we learn from public festivals that will help us when our cities allow people to gather together once again? Well, I'm joined now by Kerry Rermeyer, a professor in the geography department at San Jose State University, who has written extensively on Black Rock City, the informal settlement that pops up each year as part of the Burning Man Festival. Kerry, great to have you on the show. Now, you're here because we wanted to talk to you about Black Rock City. This is the city that gets built when Burning Man happens. Now, you're a volunteer, so you're involved 
in that city in many senses, but you're also a researcher who's looked at that city. So we want to ask you a few questions. But first of all, just explain to us what the city is, how big it is. Give listeners a sense of of what we're about to discuss. It's in a very harsh environment. So Black Rock Desert in northern Nevada, extremely hot, alkali, playa soils. It sustains no life. So it's really about self-reliance. But Burning Man Project, the nonprofit that organizes the event, they start their infrastructure building in August. And then the last volunteer will be cleaning things up in October. Of course, this year, you can't have 70,000 people camp together in the desert in very, very intense densities. So the event is going virtual, which is a real departure in its third decade as something that's been taking place as sort of a countercultural art and city gathering, which is significant to a lot of people. Many people find that their true home. They have connections that expand well beyond their time, their one week together. They have these communities and these networks that extend into their lives much beyond. From all over the world, people come to Burning Man. Well, the amazing thing is you say when you type in the words Black Rock City, the first thing you see online is postponed. That's the the word that has been attached to many events around the world. Now, it's interesting because it is an informal settlement. And as you say, you start from scratch every single time this is put together. And you are going to miss one outing of this. Is the hope that it comes back next year? And is there already some thinking about what might have to happen when you rebuild the city the next time around issues of density and around how close we want to be and can be next to each other? Absolutely. You know, I'm a little worried about Burning Man Project. I certainly hope that it comes back to the desert. There's a lot of energy around that for 2021. I'm not certain. I think none of us can predict whether vaccines will be effective and, you know, large scale applications will be in place that we can come back to large gatherings this way in a year's time. I'm certainly hopeful, you know, Black Rock City is all about street life. And that's what we need now. We need to be able to get out of our indoor small spaces, especially our urban environments are very dense places. And we need to be able to get outdoors and safely and socially interact with one another. Now, as we get our communities back up and running, there's all sorts of questions about where the gaps will be and what needs we'll have from each other to get our communities going. So you hinted at a couple of things there that you think Burning Man might be able to do, the notion of bringing art into our communities so you don't have to go to one venue, for example, to see art. Could you give us a few other ideas that you've begun to think of from Burning Man that you think would be good to take out into the wider world? Well, there's a real sense of self-reliance. So the principles that I've found so applicable now, of course, self-reliance, civic engagement, that's a real staple of city life. So how do we be civically minded right now? And I think we're all thinking of others before we're thinking of ourselves in sort of our traditional roles right now and how we're behaving in our urban environments. And we're going to have to learn to be much more not a gift economy, which is how Burning Man operates, but certainly a lot less reliant on just consumption. I mean, there's just less money to be had. There's less food to be had. I mean, you see the reports. They're so striking. They're so heartbreaking 
about how many people are in need, how many people are now on unemployment. We're going to have to work together a lot more to look at ways that we can live with less. And Burning Man, you know, it's an economy that only exists because of disposable income, unfortunately. But the lessons there are about sharing and doing things for one another without expecting something to be reciprocated. And something as simple as making a meal and sharing it with neighbors. I think people are really doing that. We're seeing a lot of that mentality put into place. Now, figuring out how to do it safely, informing people how to do things safely, that's a critical piece. I think it's happening informally and unstructured, but we need to really, at least at the local level, maybe the neighborhood, start thinking about ways that we can encourage policy around that, encourage messaging that's safe around that sort of sharing, because this is not something that just when the virus goes away, our economy, at least in the United States, is a long way from being back to where it was or even near where it was. I think that's the same around the world. And you catch people, though, at a unique moment because while the pandemic is being felt, people are willing to kind of question almost everything. There's a lot being thrown up into the air about how we work, how we live together, how society is run, and the questions you put there about the things that we own. If people haven't had to go out or been able to go out for months, their desire to worry about buying a new suit or to go and buy smart clothes, those have all kind of vanished. People are focused on simpler things, you know, getting a hold of a a good sado loaf seems more exciting than probably buying a a new jacket at this time. But do you think this is a potentially valuable moment? Because we're always trying to look for the positives at this time as well, that it could be a transformative moment if some of the ideas which Let's be honest, some people probably look at Burning Man and think it's a little bit kind of outside their world, perhaps too anarchic for some people, perhaps too rule-breaking for some people. But do you think there's an idea to bridge those two worlds in a way that say, hold on, there's actually lots of really just basic, good, interesting things happening here that we can now seed into a broader society? Yes, absolutely. I do find that. I think this is the most transformative event, certainly in my lifetime. There's so much potential to see the good, because I think we're being bombarded by so much sadness and negativity and now a political framing of what's happening, but just emphasizing that we can live a simpler life. We can live by helping one another out. We can organize ourselves that way. We don't need to rely on huge institutions and structures to tell us how. And frankly, we have less oversight because we're all at home working from home, we're not having as much, I would say, interfacing with structures and powers in place. It gives a certain freedom. And I think that the Burning Man spirit in that way is something that we can play with here in our own towns, in our own homes, and among our own networks, bringing that sort of, it's a little bit anarchistic, but it's also just a little bit more playful and a little bit more daring. And there's nothing stopping me from trying to paint a mural on my house right now. Just sort of the daily oversight and structures and also the time to do these things. There's just a lot more freedom. So if we could take nothing else away from that, I would encourage people to do something like that for their neighbors. Create art, create a meal, share, do something that doesn't cost anything. Organize amongst yourselves in that way. Well, Carrie, wonderful speech to you. Difficult times, but inspiring words from you. Thank you so much for joining us on The Urbanist. 
Look, as we've discussed here over recent weeks, cities are only cities because they've got people in them and those people need to come together to make a city come alive. The crowd is an important thing. Demonstrations, people gathering to celebrate key moments in their city's history, festivals, music festivals, theatre. Those places where we congregate are suddenly filled with an incredible energy. So as we navigate our way out of this pandemic, we, we hope we are on the way out. It's important to think how those crowds can be brought back together one day. For the moment, it feels very tricky, but we're already seeing some cities around Europe lifting restrictions so that 50 people can get together, 100 people can get together. They're working out ways of spacing us in stadia so that we can roar and cheer events and musicians on stages. All those things are vitally important. But I think as you've heard here today, people aren't giving up on the crowd. The crowd is going to come back and we just have to find how that happens. But whether you're alone with friends or with, a, with your own mini bubble of people, I wish you well and thank you for all your support here on The Urbanist. And we look forward to being back in physical spaces with all of you one day. And that's all for this edition of The Urbanist. Today's episode was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week's episode, well, here's Conan Gray with Comfort Crowd. Thank you for listening, city lovers. I just needed company now. Yeah, I just needed someone around.